Well, I'd let you know that for the next four Sundays, I want to give you a kind of a little future view here, our study together uh, from now through the end of the summer, okay? So you kind of know what's coming. For the next four Sundays, we're going to be doing a study on emotions and the Christian. So next week, I'm going to talk about anxiety and depression, and what does the Bible have to say? How does the Bible speak into that? So if you've never had anxiety or faced any kind of depression, you don't need to be here, just in case uh, that would happen. Uh, um, Pastor Sean will be here the following week talking about dealing with anger. Mother's Day, which is coming up in three weeks, just a heads up to about half of you, um, we are going to talk about joy, how to experience joy as a follower of Christ. And then on the last week, we're going to deal with grief, how to uh, face grief in a godly fashion. So the next four Sundays are going to comprise those things. And then after that, we're going to begin a study that will take us on through the summer in the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. So uh, that's kind of our general outline, and uh, I hope that you'll be... Uh, with us and uh, enjoying an opportunity to study together. I want to begin this morning telling you a story that is related to a former girlfriend. <laughs> that seems a little weird to me now that I'm actually saying it in front of you. But um, I uh, dated a gal in college who I did not end up marrying, though she introduced me to my wife, so I am still grateful for her. Um, and I went to visit she and her family uh, one during a school break from college. Uh, her dad was a pastor, and they were, uh, her mother was very uh, vocal about her opinions. And uh, it came time for me to head back to my home. And that's, this is back in the days when the national speed limit was 55. So she, I know it was a long time ago. It's surprising we even had cars, I know, to some of you. But um, as I left, as I went to get in my car, her mother stood in the doorway and said, Remember, the Holy Spirit leaves after 55. <laughs> I learned two things that day. One, it's never good to provide I told you so ammunition to a lady in that role. She never became my mother-in-law, but I think that lesson would have lingered for some time. The second lesson I learned that day, and the reason it probably would have lingered, is because I learned that at some point, if you drive over the speed limit, you will get a ticket. It will cost you um, 65 and a 55. I was so frustrated that she was right, probably more than I got the ticket. But <laughs> I've noticed something, having become the humiliated owner of my first speeding ticket, I made it, which maybe I'm impressed with myself now, but I made it all the way into college without a speeding ticket. But anyway, ever since that day, I've had a curious habit. When I'm driving along the road, regardless of how fast I'm going, if I see a police officer up ahead, I take my foot off the gas. Any of you do that? No, not at all. <laughs> There's something instinctive about that. And if you're afraid you didn't notice in time, how many of you look in the rearview mirror for a little while after you go by? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> why do we do that? Why does that concern us? It's simple, right? The person in that car has authority. 
They have authority to cause us to change our behavior. And when we recognize their authority, it changes how we function. It almost instinctively changes how we function, right? We, we drive by. It doesn't matter if we're misbehaving or not. We take our foot off the gas. You might be going five miles an hour under, but still. Because we don't want to get in trouble with the person who can get us in trouble. Listen, if you want the end of the message first today, it's this. Recognizing who Jesus is and the reality of his resurrection changes how we live. It can't help it. If I genuinely recognize who Jesus is and what he accomplished for me in his life, death, burial, and his resurrection, which we celebrate today, it will change how we live. I'm going to assume for most of you here several things. First, that you believe Jesus was born, in fact, of a virgin, that he came to this earth that we celebrate at Christmas time, and that he uh, lived here on this earth for those 30-some years, and he uh, lived the perfect life that we could never have lived, that he was God come in the flesh. I'm going to assume that you believe he lived a perfect life. I'm going to assume, for the purposes of what I'm talking about, that you believe he died a tortuous and excruciatingly painful death as a substitute for me and for you. And I want to assume today that he did, in fact, rise again. I love that passage of Scripture. I love that Nate read it because I was going to get to it eventually anyway, so now you've already heard it. But now Christ is risen from the dead. There are lots of reasons to believe that, Maybe another Easter we'll talk about some of them, but I'm going to presume for the sake of what I'm talking about that that's what most of you already believe. He conquered sin and death and vindicated both his claims and those of the Father as to who he was, God the Son, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. And I want to presume for the purposes of what I'm saying that most of you recognize that Jesus' person and work are our only hope of salvation. Now, let me talk to those of you who perhaps don't believe that or don't yet believe that. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm going to swing back around and talk about some of that at the end of the service. I am super happy that you're willing to come and spend Easter Sunday with us, and uh, I hope that we'll be able to start a dialogue together, okay? I know uh, not everybody believes what I do about these things, but today, I'm talking from John chapter 21, and if you'd find your way there, we're going to uh, discuss this resurrected Christ and how that he changes everything. And I'm going to do it from the perspective of this little kind of vignette, little, little tiny story here in John chapter 21 that happens just within days after the resurrection. And... It's an occasion that gives an opportunity for these disciples of Jesus to realize that once again, Jesus was not calling them to just believe a certain set of rules. Jesus was not calling them to just live a certain particular kind of lifestyle. Jesus was calling these guys, and he's calling you and me 
to a radical transformation of how we live. It changes everything. So the question I want to offer you as we move into this end of this chapter, or the beginning of this chapter, what difference does the resurrection make? How does your understanding of the resurrection reflect in your life? How has it changed you? John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I want to talk to you first about familiarity and security. Jesus is about to show up with these guys, but I want you to think about them, first of all, in several regards. One, they were being obedient when they went to Galilee. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 10, when Jesus saw the women, he said, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee and they'll see me there. So the fact that they went to Galilee wasn't a bad thing. It was not, a, it was not an issue of, oh man, I give up. This is, this is pointless. They just went back to Galilee which is right where Jesus said they should go. But I also want us to remember they are exhausted and overwhelmed. If you've been through seasons in your life where there's been incredible stress, incredible highs and lows that happen all in a very short period of time, Palm Sunday the celebration, everybody's shouting and cheering, Hosanna, the son of David, he's come, and everybody's excited. Five days later, they're calling for his crucifixion. There's incredible swings. There had to be incredible emotional swings for these disciples. And apart from John, who is writing this account, every one of these guys had to one degree or another abandoned, and in Peter's case, denied that they even knew Christ. They went from super excited to abandonment in the space of five days. They had done that. They hadn't just experienced it from somebody else. They had done that. They are so exhausted. All of the events of the past week or so or these past days had just overwhelmed them. They had seen Jesus twice in the upper room, but still they're processing, right? They're trying to figure out what in the world, what, what does this even mean? I, I'm just, so they went fishing. They went back to what they were familiar with. They were fishermen. They were fishermen to begin with. It was their occupation, their trade. They were good at it. It's what they knew. Even after the resurrection and these two appearances, they went back to familiarity. Here's my question for you in relation to that. Is that what happens to us on Easter Sunday or every Sunday for that matter? Do we come and we get recharged and we sing some great music and we listen to a sermon and, you know, we get a little something to take home with us? And what's different on Tuesday? What's different on Thursday for us? Is there an accumulated progression of growth? 
Or is Sunday just another day that we happen to go to church on that day? It's just what we do. Or Easter Sunday or Christmas or whenever those days are. Is it, is it possible that we're more like the disciples than we realize? That we're just going back to business as usual. We're going back to our, our normal stuff throughout the week. Sunday's different because we go to church, but make being different doesn't necessarily make a difference, right? I want to I encourage you to think about what difference is Sunday making in my Tuesday? What is, what, is it about the, what is it about the things that take place on the Lord's Day when we meet together that makes a difference in my week? I'm not trying to give you a a point-to-point correlation. I'm not trying to say, oh, this was said in that song or this was said in that particular sermon and boy, man, I'm really using that here on Wednesday or Thursday afternoon. I'm just saying, does the accumulated input of what takes place here on Sunday, is it changing you? If you look back six months in your life, has the accumulated progress of growth taking place in your life that you thought perhaps would when you first trusted Christ. It's it's about familiarity. It's about security. And we really love those things. Let me read on, beginning in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet The disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. What is going on with these guys here? They don't even know it's Jesus. This is a reminder, both about who this is and an experience they had with him previously that we'll get to in a minute. And it's about submission. They didn't recognize Jesus. Now, to be fair, it's just at the break of day. It's early. It is... Still dark, just getting light. There's maybe some mist on the water. I don't know what all's going on there, but it's, it's just barely daytime, just starting to lighten up. They're tired. They've fished all night long. Jesus is on shore, which we'll read here in a minute, is about 100 yards from where they are. So let's not be too hard on them. They didn't recognize him until Jesus makes the mundane spectacular. He asked about their catch. Children, do you have any fish? What an amazing thing. Jesus, of course, knows they don't have any yet. But he's asking them, how's it going out there? We've got nothing. Well, cast your boat on the, 
your, your net on the right side of the boat. Put it on the other side, you'll catch some. Now, I've seen, I saw writers trying to figure out, oh, from the vantage point of Jesus, he saw there were fish on the right side. I mean, he's 100 yards away at the break of day, too. He didn't see the fish. He put them there, so when they threw their net in there, they could catch them. But that's, that's not in the text, so you can file that under. That's what the preacher thinks. Here's what's interesting to me. If I go back to Luke chapter 5, there's an experience that these guys had the day they were called to be disciples that was very similar to this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, another name, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. That means they had fished all night long, they'd done what they needed to do, the nets were kind of worn out and ripped, and they brought them back in, cleaned them up, and started mending them for the next day's work. So they were already finished fishing. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are here in this occasion too. They were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. This is the occasion in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus called these men to be his disciples. He called 12 men, said, I need you guys to be close to me. I need you guys to spend some time with me. I want to prepare you to take on the task of taking my message to the world. And he incrementally introduced himself and what he believed and what he taught and who he was to these men with the intention that when he left them, they would carry on. Now, after they've been through these several years of walking with Jesus, learning all that Jesus wanted to teach them, experiencing his death, watching him be taken down off the cross and hauled away to the to the tomb, seeing him risen again, now he comes back and does the exact same thing he did when he first called him. Hey guys, how's the fishing? I relate to Peter because I enjoy fishing. I don't fish as often as I'd like to, but I do often have about the same success that Peter did too. So <laughs> um, Jesus stepped into their lives and he came to the shore and he said, We'll cast on the right side and you'll catch some. And they caught them. And immediately, John gets it. John recognized Jesus and was in awe. He recognized this is Jesus. It's the Lord. 
recognizing Jesus as the Son of God who came back to life. Listen, lots of people have claimed to know stuff. Lots of people have claimed to be important, in their, at least in their own minds. There, you know, lots of people are legends in their own mind, right? And uh, they, they say, oh, this, you ought to believe this, and you ought to follow this, and you ought to do that. They're all dead. Only one of them ever died and came back to life again. And when a dead guy comes back to life, you listen to what he says. Recognizing Jesus as God the Son who came back to life means church is no longer a chore. It means you're no longer chasing a religion. People, it it bothers me when I hear people compare Christianity with other world religions because it says to me they don't understand Christianity. It's not a list of rules. If you're around coastal very often, you'll learn we're not not real rule-oriented around here, but we are commitment-oriented. We are oriented to following after Christ. I'm going to talk about that some more in a minute. Recognizing Jesus as God the Son who came back to life means you now have hope. You have confidence for the future. And it means you have awe and wonder as you grow to understand and appreciate him more. Then verse 7, the rest of verse 7 comes. I love this verse. Sometimes I wish I was more like Peter. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea and swam for shore a hundred yards away. He was all in. Peter recognized Jesus as Lord. He recognized that Jesus was in charge. He recognized that he was Lord over creation. When the guy on the shore tells the professional fisherman, just put your net on the other side of the boat and all of a sudden you can't drag it in. It's got so many fish in it. You know something significant has happened. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over death because he didn't stay dead when he had actually died. And he's Lord over me, which means he gets to call the shots. I don't argue. I belong to him, and I am bound to serve him. Peter literally went all in, right? Was he just being impulsive? Was he just being dramatic? I mean, that is a little like Peter, right? Or is it possible that he was doing the only sensible thing when he recognized that Jesus Christ who had been dead and was now standing on the shore and he wanted to be near him? Was he doing the only sensible thing when just some days prior he had stood in front of people and said, I swear to you, I have no idea who this guy is. Had denied this man that he'd lived with and grown to love over all these years. Maybe he's doing the only sensible thing regardless of what it was he was doing or why, Peter was never the same when he recognized who Jesus was. He was all in. What, what, if, what if we went all in? What would it be like for us? We live 
in a country and in a culture where we don't have to go all in as Christians. There are some places in the world where when you testify that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're going to live by his word and what he teaches, like last week we had several people baptized saying, I'm following Christ, I'm making it public, you can get in some serious trouble. You can be killed. You can be tortured. It's happening in the world right now. People collecting Christians and killing them because they're Christians. That's not true in America right now. That's not what we face. So we don't really have to be all in. We can be mostly in. We can be partly in. We can fit it in if we want to. What if we went all in? I think two things would change. I think we'd hate what Jesus hates. We wouldn't be hateful. It's fascinating to me that, that sinful people were attracted to Jesus. The only perfect, holy, righteous person ever to walk on this planet, and sinners loved to come to him. He was not offensive to them. He did not push them away. He did not treat them like, oh, you awful, horrible people. I don't want to spend time with you. He wouldn't have tweeted evil things about them. He wouldn't have made sarcastic Facebook posts about them. There was something about Jesus that was attractive, but he hated sin. He hated sin so much that he did something about it. And if we were all in, we would hate what Jesus hates, including our own sin. If we went all in, we'd love what Jesus loves. We would strive after holiness. We would love his church as he loves his church. We would love the scriptures. We would love people. Even the ones we disagree with. Isn't one of the most powerful things that Jesus said as he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What an incredible thing. What an expression of love. We want to fight them. That's not fair. They shouldn't treat me like that or whatever it is. If we went all in, we'd love what Jesus loves. Let me just give you two thoughts this week to take home with you. One is this, and I'm coming back around to you if you're here and you're not convinced of, of this Christianity thing, you're not certain, you, you don't know, you don't have a relationship with Christ, maybe you don't know. Um, I want to say this to you. Jesus lived perfectly, died innocently, and rose bodily to provide salvation for you. Here's how that happens. It's not you living well enough. That can't happen. You, you, can't, you can't live a good enough life to score up enough points. It's, it doesn't work that way. Because you'd have to ask the question, well, how good is good enough? At what point do I get to say, okay, well, I I'm about an 85%. That's like a B, right? I don't know what it is. I haven't been in school in so long, I don't remember. But, um, like, that's pretty good, right? You get, get straight Bs? You know, you're not, the, you're not the nerd straight A type, but... You know, you're doing good. You're, not, you're better than average. Wouldn't that be good enough? That's the problem, right? That's the problem with the gospel, or the problem with the truth about the gospel is God 
demands 100% perfect righteousness. That means, since I don't think anybody here would be likely to say I've never done anything wrong yet in my life, you've already blown it. You've already missed the perfection standard. But that's what God expects. He won't let you into heaven if you're not perfect. Well, so what do I do? I'm glad you asked. You don't do anything. God did something. He sent Jesus here to live the perfect life that you should have lived but couldn't, to die a death in your place as your substitute, to be buried, to actually come back to life again and provide salvation for you. So what do you do? You come to God and you acknowledge, Lord, I, I get it. I am, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things in my life. I know that separates from me from you. So today, I want to ask you to forgive me of my sins, not because I grew up in the church or I've done nice things or I'm a pretty good person, but because I'm trusting in what Jesus did. I'm trusting in the gospel about Jesus. And I'm asking you to save me because of what Jesus did. You do that, God will save you. I'm not going to give you the words, the, the, the prayer you've got to pray. It's a heart thing between you and God. That's never happened to you. Man, go home this afternoon and have, some, have a talk with God. Get that cared for. Or jot it down. Jot it down on your Connect card and say, I want to talk more about trusting in Christ. I would love to talk to you about that. Stop and catch me. Catch me, catch Nate, catch one of these worship team members up here. Let us talk to you. We would love to do that. Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Secondly, the living Christ called you to himself. Are you all in? Are you all in or are you fitting it in? Maybe that should have been the title of the message today. Too many people are fitting in. They're fitting Christianity. They're fitting their their uh, desire to follow Christ into their life. It's not your life. Jesus called you to follow him. He called you to be his disciple. I want to challenge you to spend some time this afternoon thinking about that. What, what if I was all in? What would change? How would my priorities change in my finances, in my relationships, in whatever? Man, we'd love to talk to you about that too. I sure would be, be thrilled. Listen, we're going to sing again here in a minute, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. The worship team is going to come up, and then I'm going to have a word of prayer. But I want to I uh, tell you that I am super glad you all have come, and I hope that today makes a difference. I hope that the recognition that Jesus rose from the dead transforms us. We all need a little more of that at least, right? We all need to let the gospel continue to transform us. So whatever your need is, please let us know how we can help. We would love to do that. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. So we're going to stand again, and we're going to sing one more song here in just a minute. But let me pray before we go, okay? Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the truth of Easter and what it represents. It's not just a, another fun celebration that people have put together so that we can uh, dress a little nicer and have a nice ham dinner and all get together with family. All those things are great, Lord, but we're here to celebrate Jesus and who he is and what he did on our behalf. 
So I'm thankful for everyone that's come. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that uh, we'd, we would move a step closer to all in, and maybe some of us would really finally just go all in today. And uh, I pray for the one or more that may be here today that have come in because it's Easter Sunday, and it's what you do. And I pray, Lord, that if they are here and don't know Christ, have never trusted in Him as their hope of salvation, don't have a right relationship to you, that we'd have a chance to talk to them about it. And I pray that you'd uh, continue to work on them until they do. Thank you for your grace in our lives and for who Jesus was. As we leave this place today, Lord, we want to celebrate Jesus. For we ask and pray in his name.